Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Psalm 27 today. I invite you to open it to that place in the Bible as we prepare ourselves in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have inspired Holy Scripture, that you by that same Spirit speak into our lives and send light into our hearts so that we may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as your Spirit speaks through the word you've inspired. So would you do that again and again? Do it today even as we sit under the authority of your word, that we would be nourished by it, And that we would be brought to maturity in it. Not only for our sake, but for the sake of your body. As it grows up into maturity. Into Christ who is the head. In whom name we pray. Amen. Amen. Gaspare. That was my papa's name. Can you guess where he was from? He was a passionate man. A warm soul. A kind, gentle person. I knew him when I was very little. When I was five or six years old, he passed away in 1986. But at the time, from the videos I have and the correspondences that I've kept from back then, apparently I used to conflate his name, Papa, with my Nana's name, Nana, and just call them as one kind of unit. Nana Pup. (laughs) Of course, in an Italian uh, household, he would call me Little Bambino. And I remember all sorts of interesting things, surprisingly, because I was so young. And one of the things was he loved music, which is also a passion of mine. And I remember at the holidays he'd be playing records, because this was the 80s. Records are making a comeback, thank God. But in the 80s it was always records. And he'd be playing these Italian kind of American folk songs, like a Mori. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's a Mori. These things are etched in my soul. And there's more, but I won't sing the whole bunch. As I think about him, though, surprisingly, I can remember vivid memories. Him joyfully lifting me up. Or one summer when we were in the above-ground pool when he was pulling me around in a little float. You know, I couldn't swim. And, and just feeling safe in that place and, and joy. He was so confident. He was so bold. I was so terribly shy and quiet. I remember feeling both at once intimidated and exhilarated. This guy was loaded with emotion, loaded with joy. It was quite overwhelming, but you could just tangibly feel it in the room. I can even imagine now the intensity of the arguments that we might have if he were still here. The surefire, stubborn stalemates would find ourselves in as we equally refused to yield in an argument. And I can equally imagine the warm embraces that we'd share and the music we'd listen to and joy. I think I'm more like him than he ever knew I would be. And I'm sure I'm more like him than I thought I ever would be. And you know, between actual memories and videos, which in the 80s were taken on those ginormous VCR things that some of you probably have, I just have these memories that I have of him. But one thing that helps to kind of encapsulate those memories was a gift that I received sometime during college from my Nana. It was a pocket watch. It was my grandfather's pocket watch. The sort of thing that's special, you hang on to, that you keep. An heirloom. And it's amazing to me how small 
heirlooms can be. It could be of almost any sort. And yet they seem to have this power to contain the most cherished memories of the ones we love in a kind of a nutshell. And simply by holding them, by looking at them, history unfolds in our hands and in our hearts. The one who is absent in some way becomes strangely present once again. As I was studying this week in Psalm 27, it struck me that even the first verse of this psalm, Psalm 27 verse 1, kind of functions like an heirloom from David to us. An heirloom of the gospel. An heirloom of grace. The gospel in a nutshell. For us to sort of treasure up in our hearts and to hold in our hands at the times of our deepest need. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Light, salvation, stronghold. These were things that, as we heard in the reading, David first experienced where? Well, verses 4 through 8 tell us. In the word, in worship, in the house of God, with the people of God. And today what I want to offer you is an opportunity to hold the heirloom that David passed on in Psalm 27. And to hold it in your hands and and hold it in your hearts and let it unfold as we open God's word and dive into it by God's spirit. And we'll see how like the presence of a lost beloved from bygone years, the very presence of God bursts into our hearts like light and rescues our soul like a savior and safely keeps us to the end like a stronghold. This is an heirloom, friends, of grace, an heirloom of the gospel. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 27, verse 1, and we'll start with light. Light, salvation, and stronghold. We'll start with light. Before we get into light, though, we have to admit that almost every contemporary approach that teaches us how to deal with fear tells us to confront our fears directly. It tells us if you take your fears head on and you confront them, well then maybe you can overcome them in some sense. You can achieve a sense of greater wholeness in your life. You can achieve a sense of greater flourishing in your day-to-day existence. I think there's some truth in that for sure. You can grow as a human being. That's a good thing. But these fears, when you read the peer-reviewed articles, when you read the psychological journals, they seem to be a lot less consuming and apocalyptic than what David was dealing with in Psalm 27. I'll, I'll give you an example here. In a 2015 article from the Australian broadcast company, the ABC, they noted that the number one fear for Aussies were social phobias, particularly the fear of public speaking. Some of you may struggle with that. And the most common fears below that were the fear of heights, which is not surprising, and really not surprising for Australia, the fear of snakes. Cross the pond and read a Chapman University survey, and you find that, lo and behold, Americans share most of those same fears, fear of heights, the fear of public speaking, all this sort of thing, fear of bugs and snakes, very common. But I did find that there was one fear that 
our Aussie friends do not share that makes the top 10 list here in America. Amusingly, 7.6% of Americans are deathly afraid of clowns. That's a larger percentage of people than are afraid of ghosts. I just don't understand this. It's like, thanks a lot, Stephen King. What's more, the study reveals, quote, Democrats are nearly twice as likely as Republicans to have a fear of clowns. I just don't understand that. I don't understand it. And I get to thinking, you know, with all this talk about what's proper attire on Capitol Hill, we may have to add a no clown costume clause. Bipartisan, of course. No worries. This fear, actually, of clowns, which surprised me, because I think they're delightful, um, really came to a head in America in 2016. McDonald's used to have a character who was their lead guy. Do you remember who this was? Ronald McDonald, who was a clown. Well, in the early 2000s, apparently, people started dressing up as clowns and committing crimes. So McDonald's reports that coupled with this hate of clowns that Americans have, this fear of clowns, and these crimes, they say, quote, the current climate surrounding clown sightings in communities is the reason Ronald McDonald is being taken away from mentorship and all these things. I couldn't believe that. I thought that's wild. But when it comes to this psalm, it is evident that David is not talking about snakes or clowns or public speaking. Those things can be curbed to some extent by our own human effort. No, no, David's situation is dark. David's situation is really dark. And for some of us, that might feel like our situation too. I mean, how does David describe the kind of predicament that he's in? It says, evil doers are assailing him. They're desiring to devour him. And this language evokes sort of being totally consumed by the evil around him. Totally taken in and eradicated by his enemies. This is no small thing. David speaks about being besieged and an all-out war being waged against him by those who are breathing against him to take him down. Yes, it's, it's into this chaos that David almost stubbornly exclaims, yet I will be confident. What is the meaning of this immovable, fearless certainty in the midst of his seemingly imminent destruction? Well, David's fearlessness relies not on a sort of delusional, fading flicker of human self-improvement, you know, something that's left over in us after the fall, a sort of dull star in the dying galaxy of our corrupt and human-broken hearts. No, no, no. David's confidence, you see, resides in the bright morning star, the divine light that bursts into darkness and shines life and light into our hearts. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And this is how it's been since the beginning. In fact, the first words of the Bible in Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God was hovering by his spirit over the darkness in the face of the deep, the voice of God said, let there be light. And the Bible says, and there was light. And that same light and life that created planets also created people and caused us to be born again. And the Bible says, God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
It's a light that took us from the domain of darkness in Colossians into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the light that Jesus himself is when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you know, as C.S. Lewis once commented, God as a light breaking into the world is like a sunbeam. And the point then is not to continue to look at how dark the world is, but to run one's gaze up the sunbeam back to the sun. You see, this is not sin's faint flicker. This is God's gracious floodlight that comes to find you and comes to bring you home. In a moment of great darkness, David instructs us all to follow the beam. To follow the beam back to its source. Now maybe you've been a Christian for some time. But maybe the flame of God in you, the power of God, the joy of God, the light seems to be burning out. Maybe you already feel burnt out. And David's psalm is an opportunity for you to re-up your lampstands with the oil of joy and obedience. Not to fixate on the dying flicker, but to follow the beam back to its source. The genesis of the glimmer that said, let there be light in the beginning, continues to say, let there be light in the midst of your present darkness. He continues to say it. But if we're honest, there's others in here that are like I was in my early 20s. Maybe you're sensing a light. You're sensing that there is a light. But you're not really sure what to make of it. I recall one time in around 2001, I was returning from a 10-hour drive straight home from North Carolina in Chapel Hill to Boston. At this time, I was traveling full-time with the band. We would do stuff like this all the time. I would usually rock up home around 2 or 3 in the morning and then go to work at 8 in the morning. Usually stop for McDonald's in the middle of the night, which is not a good idea. And I pulled up in my driveway, and we had just had this whirlwind week of shows and people coming and buying things and feeling important and good, and I just felt empty. It was dark, very dark, and I just sat there in my car and put my head down on the steering wheel and just kind of sat there. You ever felt this when you place so much trust in worldly accomplishments or achievements that you get to the mountaintop that you've been waiting for and maybe it's taken decades to get there and then you realize just as fast as you seem to have been exalted, it all starts to become deflated. It all starts to come down. It doesn't deliver on its promises. That's how I felt. And so I wasn't yet a Christian and I did the only thing I knew how to do to deal with this sort of thing, which is to write a song. So I grabbed a napkin and started writing in the dark. And here's some of the words I wrote before I knew Jesus. When I'm walking in the dark, it's hard for me to tell apart the ones who are sincere or those who try and fake it. If you are a friend to me, you would know that I believe that everything in life must happen for a reason. See, I was reformed even back then before I was a Christian. <laughs> God had me there. And it continued, hey, don't go. Times are tough, but now you know our faith will grow and carry us home. What business does an unbeliever have writing those lyrics? 
It's the lyrics that you write when the God who is light breaks in, even in the smallest beam, and starts to capture your heart by telling you the truth in a world full of lies and darkness. It is attractive, and when you follow that beam and you follow that light, it leads you not back to the right philosophy or even the right perfect worldview. It leads you to its source, and its source is Jesus. Its source is Jesus, and he changes your life. And not soon after that, my dad had this dilapidated, really should have been condemned. It was a garage. You couldn't park a car in it because it looked like it was going to collapse. Somehow we sold his house with the garage like that, and the people just took it. Sitting outside the garage, and what happens? The sun comes up, and it didn't just trickle in. It blasts into the car, and it's the kind of thing where it's on your arms and on your face and all around you, and you feel this warmth. So I said, I got to finish the song. And I wrote the chorus. Oh, as the morning it breaks, sun shines through my window as I wake. Light gives me strength. Light keeps me safe. It was years before I became a Christian, but God was out ahead of my conversion, running after me. He's the light of the world, just like he ran after you and is is coming to you today as light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And you know, I just want to stop here and say, prior to all that, a pastor had given me a Bible for Christmas a year before. A year before this event. It was a New Living Translation. Right? I thought this was the weirdest thing that someone would give me a Bible. I was like, I'm not going to read this thing. I'm not going to read it. If I showed you this Bible, it looks like I dragged it through the mud. You know when books get like that? Just all gnarly. And in the beginning of this Bible, my friend had written a note. And my friend had said, John, actually said Johnny, which is what everyone called me. If you look at any words in this world, look at the words in this book. There is light in this book. There is truth in this book. Give the Bible to your children and read the Bible with your families. Read the Bible and in it you will find light and life. You will find Jesus. I followed the beam and it led me to Jesus. Light, not darkness, is your heirloom. Life, not darkness, is your inheritance. Right, but that's not all David says. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Salvation and stronghold. When we look at the world, we see a lot of illuminating things, don't we? Especially in this age. We hear a great lecture, a great podcast, and we say, wow, that was really illuminating. We watch a powerful film or maybe a documentary that really changes our perspective on something, and we say, wow, that was enlightening. You know, just because something's enlightening or illuminating, that does not necessarily mean that it brings salvation. What's to say that the gospel's any different? And yet, this difference is precisely what David asserts in this psalm. That this heirloom, Psalm 27, this gospel in a nutshell, is about the Lord who is light, salvation, and stronghold. But we have to recognize something that I want you to wrestle with, with me, right now. We have to recognize that as we take solace in the words of David, as we take comfort in Psalm 27, we are in fact repeating the triumphant words of the dead man David. Here's what I mean. David likely prayed this prayer or this sort of prayer many times in his life. 
And many times, probably most times, his experience was that God delivered him into an earthly victory in the present. It worked. It worked. The prayer worked. But there did come a day, if you know the story of David, when he would have prayed this prayer and it didn't work. He prayed to win a a big battle, but that day he lost. He not only lost the battle, but would have lost his life. So was this the day that David's jig was up? Was this psalm really just a security blanket to get him through? It was just another tool for temporal psychological comfort? A way to sort of convince ourselves that there really is more beyond the eternal void of nothingness and meaninglessness by dressing up nihilism in a pragmatic philosophy and a pretty poem so that we can soothe ourselves to sleep at night. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Check out verse 4. David has just explained that he's totally surrounded by enemies, about to be devoured up in this situation. But then he shifts gears entirely. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You want to say, hold up, David. That's a good desire, but you're in the middle of a field surrounded by an enemy. You're not in the sanctuary of God, David. What is he talking about? Follow to verse 5. For in the day of trouble, God will keep me safe in his dwelling. Again, David, you're surrounded by armies. You're not in the house of the Lord. Are you delusional? Do you have a divine teleport that gets you, you know, beams you directly to the temple whenever you're in distress? What's going on? No, no, no. See, David is holding on, as we hold on, to the truths and the promises of the heirloom of grace. He's making present in this absence that which seems very far away. By holding on to the truth of the gospel that he first heard in the temple and sang alongside the people of God. He's bringing his experience of his prior presence of God through worship in God's word into the atmosphere of the danger of his present predicament. Predicament where God, no doubt, feels very absent. Continue on to verse 9. Verse 9, David pleads with God, do not forsake me. And then in verse 10, he affirms that God will not forsake him. But he says this, I love this line, but God will take me in. He's connecting to the heirloom. He's following the beam. Verse 11, David reveals this expectation that God will lead him on a level path. And on the basis of that, he concludes by preaching the gospel to himself. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Take courage. You know, sometimes it is, the, it is real. I mean, we can face our fears and, and get over them. But I think what's even harder is to have the courage to wait. To have the courage to wait is sometimes much harder than the courage to be the fool who rushes in. To face a fear and a foe that you could never overcome and never get past. I don't think any of this is wishful thinking on David's part though. We hear this kind of language about God not forsaking his people from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's all over the Bible. I'll just give you two examples. In the first chapter of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, 
God exhorts Joshua saying this in verse 5 of chapter 1. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and take heart. The same words we find in the psalm. And then you fast forward to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Written to Christians and from Christians we receive it to us. And God says this, hear the word of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's God's promise in the gospel to us that we grab hold of when we hold onto the heirloom of Psalm 27 verse 1 and watch it unfold in our midst, in our minds, in our hearts. It changes us. It gives us great confidence in the midst of affliction. But we read, we're, we're contemporary people. We read blogs. In 2019, an article from Forbes entitled How to Overcome Fear by contributor Adam Stott, it takes a bit of a different approach from David, right? Rather than focusing on God as our salvation and God as our stronghold, the author suggests that we, quote, work on getting tougher and developing grit so that no matter what challenges come our way, we will get back in the game, and he says, and dust ourselves off, right? And we like that kind of language as Americans because we're in control. It makes sense if you're talking about public speaking. It makes very little sense if you're talking about judgment, death, and the looming nothingness of existential crises that cannot be solved by us by looking at the light within. He continues, quote, There is no excuse for giving in. There's no excuse for giving in. There are only results. And fear is just your mind telling you a story that's not true. We all have bad days. We all have problems. We all have challenges. It's how we decide to stand up to them that determines the winners. And we all want to be the winners, right? The reality is that while there is some truth to what Forbes says, to conquer everyday fears, it's completely incapable of conquering the fear of death the fear of judgment, the reality of death. You don't face an army surrounding you and take the Forbes path rather than the Jesus path. Psalm 27 actually offers us an alternate strategy, a better strategy, a savior-centric strategy, not a self-improvement strategy. You see, David's eternal confidence comes from a savior who is a better Joshua he takes us not only across the Jordan into the promised land. He takes us across the void to the goodness of God in the land of the living. And the courage that, that carries us across the chasm, this is a courage that goes forth in trembling. When Jesus was in the garden, he wasn't a steady stoic seeking self-improvement. He was a savior who sweat blood and then took the sins of the world on the cross. Only Jesus could do that. And he went forward, not coolly and calmly, but trembling. Trembling at the reality of death coming onto him and exhausting its power fully on him so that we might have life. Let the stoic deal with stage fright. Only Jesus can conquer sin and death. The gospel, according to Forbes, assumes that we got to win every battle and then maybe, 
maybe after you've done that, then you may, but probably not, win the war eventually. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says the war has already been won. And so that when you do come to that day, when you lose a battle, and we all do and we all will, that's not the day that God's promise fails. That's the day that God's promise comes to fruition in eternal life from which nothing can separate the Christian. And so to the anxious heart that is weary of all kinds of earthly fears, David says to us, there is a level path. And there's one who walked that path before you, one who shines light into the darkness, calling you to follow where that beam comes from. Friends, fear has no residence within heaven's borders. Because long ago, perfect love has cast it out by the power of Almighty God. Almighty, you will say, as we conclude. But in order for an heirloom to exist, there must be an absence. Isn't that right? Well, then how can an absent God be an Almighty God? Isn't that the problem, Christian? Show me His might by His presence, then I will believe. Then I will acquiesce to the heirloom. Then and only then could I possibly convince with anything like the daring confidence of David. And yet, how quickly we forget, as one theologian put it, that the most powerful times that God is at work in the history of the Bible, the most powerful times of God's presence, are the times when he's present with an invisible almightiness. In the womb of Mary, God was invisibly almighty. The mother of God shook at what was happening, but she took courage and grabbed hold of the heirloom of grace and said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. On the cross and in the empty tomb, the invisible almightiness of God was at work in the power of the Spirit in Jesus. Seemingly absent, but invisibly almighty in Mary, in Jesus, in us. I've got one other heirloom, and I'll show you this as we close. And then we'll take communion together as we continue in our service. And this was given to me. This is a, a communion patent. This was given to me by my Nana. And on the back, it says, Gaspare Belitti, February 17th, 1986. This is from his funeral mass and this would have been where the communion bread was as we said goodbye to him but celebrated the common faith in which we're united forever in Jesus Christ. This is something that I'd like to hand back to him someday when I see him face to face in the land of the living as David says in Psalm 27 and maybe together then like the song we'll feast in the house of Zion but until then, friends, I take comfort in knowing that not only did we share the same country of origin, but we shared the same Savior and were nourished by the same spiritual food that is an heirloom of the truth of the gospel that Jesus died and his body was broken and that his blood was poured out. And that every time we take that sacrament, we're participating in the gospel together with the communion of saints from every tribe, tongue, nation, continent, and age. That's the power of the gospel. Those are the heirlooms of grace. 
And it's easy to hold in my hand the heirlooms of Gaspare. But we also all hold in our hearts the heirlooms of grace. Psalm 27 being one of them. Someday when we see our loved ones face to face again, we will all put down our heirlooms. How else could it be? How else with hands so full could we hold the hands again of those we love who have been resurrected by the Son of God? The hands of Gaspare, the hands of God, the hands of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, you give us tokens of salvation to hang on to the tangible presence of God. Baptism, communion, your Bible, the Word of God in Psalm 27. We just ask that you would lead us today further into your light. Where there's those here that don't know you but sense you're leading them, let them follow to the source of that light. And for those of us who feel like the flicker is running out, reignite our faith, God. Not by some sort of program, but by a person, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and himself provides all the light we need to flourish forever, world without end. In his name we pray, amen.